Take your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts 9. We return to our series, Transformation Story. By the way, we have a, you should have it in the e-bulletin, it'll be up on the screen here also, a phone number that you can actually text if you have questions about the sermon. I promise that I will answer those if I don't have time at the end of the service. I'll do it later today. If you want to text and you have questions, be more than happy to engage any of you on that. But anyway, Acts 9 is about Saul's conversion at the Damascus Road. And we read through this whole book of Acts, and you really get the message that God could do pretty much anything he wants to do, right? I mean, God is sovereign. He intervenes in, in, in people's lives in a variety of ways. And it teaches us that God works differently in everybody, right? It's important, I think, for us to recognize and not get discouraged at maybe how God has intervened in our life. I mean, I I did not have a Damascus Road type of experience. I I came to Christ in the ninth grade. You know, the change was kind of gradual, but there was change, and I didn't doubt that God was working in my life. But, you know, I didn't go blind for three days. I didn't fall down on the ground. You know, there was not flames of fire coming off of people's heads or doves flying or rushing wind or any of that. It was more of a kind of a gradual change, but no less miraculous. It may have been less dramatic, but no less miraculous and transformative for me as it was just over over a period of time. And so I still believe that God can work and he can do whatever he wants. And I, I want our faith to expect God to do that, to do whatever he wants to do, and for us to look for him to transform our lives. So let's take a look at this passage. I'm going to read from Acts 9, verses 20 through 22. Let's all stand. And even though I know we're going to have up on the screen all the verses through verses 1 through 22, I'm not going to read the whole section. I'm just going to start with verse 20 and go from there. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and says, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. In previous messages we've had on this passage, we talked about Saul's conversion. It really has been an amazing thing to see his life just turn on a dime from a persecutor of Christians to now a proclaimer of Christ. And today we're going to finish out this series as we focus on Basically, the response from Saul, some see this as maybe evidence of his conversion. I see this more as kind of indispensable qualities of his faithfulness. Saul made the choice not to resist the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. He said yes to the work of God in his life. Now, when that happens, for many people, you know, they have the idea that when I say yes to God working in my life, I'll say yes as long as, you know, that means more money, more success, relational ease. You know, these are kind of the signs of capitalist Christianity. But when Ananias questioned God about Saul's conversion, I mean, it just blows me out of the water that God said to Ananias in verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I mean, right up front. Now, 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 can you imagine when you first came to Christ, 
You know, that 30 seconds afterwards, somebody's telling you, oh, and by the way, when you, you know, you make this decision, you are going to suffer. I bet it's less than one out of 10 that have had that said to us. And yet that's, that's pretty much a biblical concept that, that you can expect hardship as you come to Christ. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I mean, I think it had been easy to kind of, you know, throw out some bait to Saul. Say, hey, if you come to Christ, there are going to be thousands that will follow you, thousands that will come to know the Lord. I mean, you could tease him with that. You know, listen, if you'll come to Christ, I'll set up a really cool stage, stage lights, dancing bears. I mean, people are going to really be impressed with your show, okay? He does none of that. Saul knows there's going to be persecution ahead. And what does he say? I'm in. I'm in. I wonder if our presentations of the gospel were more aligned with that, we'd have less fall off. You know, if you adjust the expectations from the beginning, this is going to be hard. Well, then I know kind of what to expect. This is not going to be a cakewalk. Consider the example of Jesus. Check this out. It said that he had his face set toward Jerusalem. Luke 9, 51 through 56 says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So what that means is he knew that Jerusalem meant crucifixion. He knew that Jerusalem would mean suffering. And from the time he was born, he set his face. I've got a mission to do. Even the first 30 years of his life, and he, even though he wasn't active in his public ministry, set his face toward Jerusalem. He knew what was up ahead. I mean, many of us, you know, if, if you knew what was up ahead in marriage, if you knew what the first five years, 10 years, 15 years would have been like, would you have said, I'm all in, knowing how difficult it can be. Jesus knew up ahead it's going to be suffering, and I'm going to still fulfill God's call. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, uh, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Why? Because it says in verse 53, the people did not receive him. But he turned and rebuked them and said, uh, and they went to another village. Christ was making preparation for Jerusalem, the crucifixion. He knew he was going to suffer. I don't think this was some momentary courage, not an impulse. He knew all along. And he was steadfast. I'm going to Jerusalem. Isaiah 50, verse 7 says, he set his face like flint toward suffering. I mean, not only did the Samaritans have trouble with this concept, but so did the, the Jews, because they wanted a conquering Messiah, right? Not a suffering servant. I mean, sometimes Christianity is presented in such a way, that, you know, it kind of comes through an, an entertainment mode, you know, capped with a promise of your best life now. And that usually means, you know, healing, more money, greater success, more happiness, right? Now, not that there's anything wrong with any of that, as far as that in and of itself. It's just that none of that is promised by the gospel. I mean, when we accept the mistaken notion of the gospel has those things, we have these false expectations. 
You know, we have it for marriage, for life. We talked about this, about having happiness as an idol last week. Remember that? If we get unhappy, church, marriage, life, what happens then with our ability to endure? It goes out the window. So basically then something went wrong. We, we, we blame God. Or we'll blame ourselves. We think, well, I just didn't have enough faith. I must have done something wrong to deserve this. And again, it kills endurance. I mean, how do you think the perspective of of having joy and suffering is impacted when we have those kind of misconceptions? Listen to Habakkuk 3, verses 17 and 18. It says this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. If you underline your Bible, you can underline those two words, I will. There's a choice we have. There's a perspective that we can choose. We are not subject To the circumstances, we can choose joy, we can choose rejoicing. And so, how do we affix our hearts toward that joy, toward that rejoicing in the midst of the hardship? How do we affix our hearts so that we can endure, so that we can stay faithful? I think that we can see some of this in Saul and how he positioned himself to go Full steam ahead, even though there were hardships. We read in verse 20, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the Son of God. Well, this is going to be in perfect sermon fashion. We're going to have three points today, all right? So you'll be, you'll be good to go. The first one is this. He was eager to serve. It says, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. And it explains later in verse 21 that people were astounded that this guy who was persecuting Christians is now proclaiming Christ. What prompted this eagerness to serve? Well, we can only assume by this is that his conversion was very genuine. We know it was the real deal, right? Dramatic, yes, but more importantly, genuine. There was no doubt to the fidelity of his commitment to Christ. And so he seemed to be ready at whatever God called him to do. There was a changed heart. There was a willingness to serve. Uh, My wife heads up the women's ministry here. And recently she was putting together a, a team of people to come alongside her. She always has a team of four or five women that help her with the years, um, you know, the, the years ministry. And I, let me just preface this to say that when we have an offer, sometimes the godly thing to do is to say no, okay? So I just want to say that there's, there's good reasons to say no to opportunities. But in this case, she had asked several women if they wanted to serve, and we were so blessed by one response that she got, I, I just wanted to, to read it for you. This is what one woman said in response to Janet asking her to serve on this team. She said, Good morning, Janet. 
Uh, thanks for allowing me the opportunity to pray the last couple days. I do not consider myself as a lead type person. However, I do trust God completely. And if he laid my name on your heart, he has something in mind for me. And I don't want to miss out. So yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. That was my chant over and over in my head after our last study. End quote. Wow. See, when... When your heart is ready to serve, you see invitations as what? An opportunity. But when you're self-protective, you know, you've been hurt and you don't want to serve again or you're just tired. I'm going to take a year off, which is two years, three years. I'm going to just sit, okay? But when we're self-protective, then those opportunities to serve are really nothing more than a nuisance. I've told this story before about a neighbor of ours who lost his wife and shortly after came to my door and said, uh, Hey, I know you're a pastor, so uh, would you mind if I came to your church to serve somewhere? Who does that? So I slammed the door. I said, never come to my house again. I don't want to talk to you. No. (laughs) I mean, it's just amazing what God does in people's hearts when their hearts just overflow with this gratitude and they, they want to serve. So see, serving steps out on the playing field and it says, you know, God, I'll take my lumps. I'm willing to sacrifice if... You know, your gospel team can advance the ball. That's what I want to see happen. And serving is one of the primary ways in which we kind of stretch our faith muscles. We stay in shape. I mean, somebody described most churches as, you know, a football field. And the people on the, on the field are desperately in need of rest. And the people in the stands are desperately in need of exercise to get out, down on the field and, and get something done. And unfortunately, the majority are in the stands sometimes, right? Now, Saul's history certainly included great times of service, but it also included intense times of learning. Uh, we see, for instance, when he was uh, trying to demonstrate that his apostleship came from God directly in Galatians 1, he says this, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. So Saul is converted on the Damascus road. He then preaches in Damascus. He then goes away to Arabia for three years. And apparently studied and returns and then preaches in Damascus for a couple years. He then goes to Jerusalem and then he escapes from Jerusalem and goes to Caesarea. He then returns to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Now, wherever he was, he was serving. And if he wasn't serving, he was learning. But he was directly involved, active in one way or another, devoted to the kingdom of God. Now, I know that many sitting here feel like, They're just not ready. Uh, I don't have an education for that. I'm not good in front of people. And and we we talk ourselves out of it with 15 reasons why we can't be serving. But Saul, I mean, he had just come to Christ. He didn't have time for a biblical education. And he immediately is serving. And verse 21 talks about how amazed people were at that transformation. 
Well, next, our passage tells us that Saul increased all the more in strength. He was actively growing and maturing. Increasing in strength, growing in his relationship with Christ. But the the maturity came by responding to life's hardships in a way that that, that we grow and we learn. He, He welcomed the sanctifying work of Christ that comes through hardship. He was willing to enter in. I, mean, I guess when it comes to our physical life, it's easy to see the things that uh, can contribute to good health. I mean, uh, you know, you can step on a scale. You can measure that, right? You can look at what you're eating, okay? You can look at your energy level. These are all ways in which we can gauge our physical life, but how about our spiritual life? How do we know in our spiritual life whether we're mature, maturing or growing? Well, here's some passages that talk about it. It might, it might give us some clues. 1 Corinthians 14.20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, but infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. So there's a, there's a mature way to think that welcomes growth, and then there's, a, there's an immature way that, that, that can block growth. So how we think about God, how we think about ourselves, about our place in the body, how we think about these things can help or hinder our growth. I mean, what, what comes to the mind turns into an action, turns into a habit, turns into a character. It all starts with what we think. And by the way, in the context of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul was trying to make the, make the point that he wanted thinking to be a part of the Corinthian worship. He wanted their minds to be engaged. It's not just a subjective thing. Such an important point when we think about Christianity, particularly in America. I mean, most of uh, Christians now seem to just want some kind of subjective existential experience. And you, you hear the way people's church experience is talked about today. It's, you know, I sense the presence of God. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that alone without engaging our minds is, I think, incomplete. Our minds have to be engaged. I can... I can think deeply about things, of, of how the Word impacts my life. I think deeply about what's going on in the world and the difference that, that, that Christ can make. I'm, I'm willing to engage other people on this until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Here's another idea. And of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, Ephesians 4.13. I don't know that I'd ever seen this point before, but that unity contributes to maturity. So I guess we could make the point that disunity keeps us stuck. Hmm. Now, when we talk about unity, we're not talking about uniformity. We're not saying we all have to agree on everything. Unity is when I can keep the essentials before me, the essentials of Christ and and, and the Scripture and, and salvation, what's important for those things. But there are other things, you know, politics, uh, you know, uh, eschatology or tongues. These are things that I don't deem as essential to our faith. So I prioritize the essentials. My fellowship is not contingent upon us agreeing on all those details, on all those non-essentials. Now, this is hard, I think, in Christianity today in America. 
because we all have our own little pockets of things that we have to agree with to be a part of this denomination. In fact, most denominations are figured by agreeing on the non-essentials, right? But I think there's something healthy, and this is really kind of an experiment at Christ Community. Can we have a church where we have the essentials that we accentuate, but we can disagree on other things, and that's okay? Can we still have unity? And I would say a resounding yes. We don't have to dress alike. We don't have to have the same politics. We don't have to agree on those lifestyle issues that most Christians get so bugged out about. We don't have to agree on, you know, whether you drink or not, or whether you should go to movies or not, or how long your hair is, or, you know, again, what your politics are. I hate to keep harping the politic thing, but we need to hear it. Because that's not why we are united as a body. Unity is forged. Listen, unity is forged through difficulty. That means through the disagreements. That means we have the tough conversations. And I realize, you know what? In the end, we don't have to agree on this stuff because we still have Christ. And we agree on the essentials of the gospel. And my fellowship is not contingent on us agreeing on all those things. It's, it's Christ that binds us together. And listen, When we quit on the relationships and we go the easy route and just get with our four and no more, just the people who agree with us, we miss the growth and we're stuck. We don't mature. Got an issue? Got a problem with somebody in the body of Christ? Have the difficult conversation. Do it in love. Do it with respect. Hang on to the essentials of the gospel that bind us together and learn to forgive Learn to work with one another. Learn to stay unified. And watch God give you what? Strength and maturity. Maturity means you are learning to handle future hardships with perspective. Instead of, you know, putting the relationship on the line if you don't agree with me. Or we, we get our feelings hurt that somebody disagrees with. It's like our self-image is on the line And you have to agree with me. And so we front load the conversation with all this emotion. It's like, hey, hey, man, back off, dude. Okay? I mean, there are some things that are political in terms of like, let's say abortion. All right? Well, that's in the political stream. But I think the scripture speaks specifically about that. Okay? So I can stand on that. But there are other things it doesn't speak, you know, clearly about. And so we just need to give room. But anyway. Next. Hebrews 5.14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You cannot mature without feeding on those things that, that feed the soul, and in this case, obviously, it's the Word of God. I mean, if I go around just eating ho-hos, drinking Dr. Pepper, eating chips, my body will look worse than even it does now, okay? And you cannot be healthy, when you do that, and it's a, the same thing is true in the spiritual life, we have to engage the Word of God. Now listen, I want to explain this. I love those chocolate cupcake things that have the icing, the chocolate icing little swirls, and then the cream inside. I could eat a dozen of those in one sitting, okay? I love those. Now I haven't had one in years, but I have to say no. Do I like them? Yes, and that's the problem, okay? I like it. I love Dr. Pepper, too. I'm talking to myself here in the sermon, okay? All right? 
But at times I have to say no, okay? Not often enough, but I, I do. I say no. The point is, what we like isn't always good for us. And I have to discipline myself to do the things that are healthy. And when it comes to the Word of God, it's the same way. When I get up in the morning, I don't always feel like reading the Scripture. But the discipline of doing that on a regular basis, you know what that does? That basically forms my appetites. It helps me to realize that, wow, you know, when I'm done with this, it's like, man, this was rich today. This was really good. The habit of doing it, even though you don't always feel like it, helps to train the appetite in the senses. So there's, there's discipline involved in that. We think that, you know, when I read the Word of God and I pray, it's all got to be, you know, bam, wow, a light came on. And, you know, that's just not my experience most of the time. Now, I love doing it, but it's not always these great emotive moments. But all of the moments with Christ are good, are healthy in terms of reading his word and prayer, obviously. And so I just want to communicate that there's a, there's a discipline that goes along with that. Okay, so I was thinking about this in terms of a church, church-wide, because we're talking about maturing and how, how a church then can mature. And one of the ways, I think, that we mature as a church is understanding what our win is. In other words, what we're after, what our goals are as a church. What's most important to us? Is it bodies, bucks, and buildings? Is that what defines success for us? What is it? Well, let me just, let me just throw these out for your consideration. Spiritual fervency, relational and emotional health, and compassionate outreach. Spiritual fervency. That means that there is a, there's a, a passion for us as we worship together. There's a passion as individuals as we study the Word of God and we're growing. We take responsibility for our spiritual life. And then there is, a, there is a relational and emotional good health to the church body. That we, we have the difficult conversations. There, and there are difficulties. There are hardships. But, but we're healthy. We show respect. We love one another. And by the way, there's not from leadership a shaming, a guilting to get people to do stuff. You know, how many times when you're talking about a, you know, giving or serving, you'll get a 15-minute diatribe on, you know, why aren't you guys doing this? You need to do this more. And, you know, we're used to, in evangelicalism to be shaming to get people to do something. But I think good spiritual health for a church body does not have that kind of stuff. Now, we all have to have tough conversations. Sometimes there's a come-to-Jesus meeting, and we need to say, hey, we really need help here. That's one thing. But constant haranguing and ridiculing people that's, I think, out of bounds for any spiritual leader. Accepted. It's a sad state of evangelicalism. Some people don't feel like they've had church unless they get beat up. So there's an there's a emotional health, a relational health, and then I think there is a compassion outreach that a, when we win, it's when we as a church body are not concerned about ourselves, self-focused. We're concerned about the people who are not here. We're concerned about the people who are in great need. And as a body, we are, we are reaching out. We had a staff retreat this 
past weekend. Great time with our staff. Love our staff team. It's just amazing. But I was sharing with them at how our church has made a significant transition, like in the last decade, in terms of reaching out. For instance, and I don't say this as, uh, as a, you know, self-congratulatory as much as it is just what God is doing in our midst. It's just so cool to see. You know about Guatemala initiative that we've had. The last two years, if you were to count the individual commitments that you've made to sponsor children, and you count the last two of our Advent conspiracies, we've given over $120,000 to Guatemala. That's in the last two years. That's a lot of bubacos. And that has come from you to help out. They're going to get a new kitchen. We hope that will be built this year. Got a new truck, new windows. Guess what? A school has started to teach these children in, in Guatemala at our Bethlehem Care Point. I mean, there's, there's support. We're going there in about a month, and there's relationships that are being built. That's a win. That's a win for us because we see the kingdom of God being built and lives being improved. By the way, they, they have built and now have a chicken coop. That's a win. You know why? Because they want to create businesses to support themselves. That's a win for you. We look at what's gone on with our, our attempts for unity in Springfield with black churches. I mean, you know, you've, you've heard me speak about this before, where, you know, you had the, the five men, was it four or five men that were hung in the uh, city square back in 1900-something. And 12% black in Springfield, and they scattered after that hanging. It has never returned. It's now like 2 or 3%. Never returned. There's a lot of work to be done in Springfield in terms of racial reconciliation. But here at CCC, and there are other churches, we're not the only ones, coming together, trying to work with the black leaders and black churches, just letting them know that, hey, we want, we want to be there for you. We, we've partnered with Life360 there in the inner city with, with, uh, and also with Weaver's School. We give to them monthly. We serve. I love when I hear, I was talking, I met with Jeremy and his staff this past week. And he said, yeah, you've got multiple life groups that have come over here and served with Fairbanks here. And like, I didn't know. That's great, you know. And why? Because you're compelled to do that. That's a win. That's a win because I see us progressing in our compassion for the city. These are wins for us. That's how I measure us as a church. Spiritual fervency. Relational, emotional health compassionate outreach. So we say, yay God, at that. And on an individual basis, how about when marriages are put together, separated, come back together, and find deep satisfaction in Christ and the ability to share grace and love now with the spouse where before they were in trouble. A student grappling with their witness at school and, and being bold for Christ, that's a win. These are character-building episodes that put together a narrative of God doing supernatural work, maturing the body of Christ. Lastly, it says, and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Wow, what phraseology, proving that Jesus was the Christ. So we can have confidence in the historical reality of the person and work of Christ. Proving that Jesus was the Christ. Let me ask you this. How can you prove that Jesus was the Christ if all religion is relative? How can you prove that Jesus was the Christ if all religion is just an opinion? 
Now, I believe that you can demonstrate that the person and work of Christ is something that's objective. That means it stands out there as true regardless of what I think or believe. Jesus was a man who lived in space and time and in human history, and his life is verifiable, particularly the resurrection. And Saul, as he was preaching, could demonstrate the resurrection because of eyewitness accounts. People were alive during that time. He could say, hey, hey, Bill, come on over here. Tell them how you were there and you saw Jesus when he rose from the dead. I saw it. I was right there. Hey, Julie, come on over here. Tell them what happened. There were real people that were eyewitnesses that could attest to the resurrection. In addition, he could point to Old Testament scripture and demonstrate how prophecy had been fulfilled in Christ. That's amazing. So I think we need to be intellectually honest and consider the evidence. Or people can make outrageous claims about how all religion is just relative. It's just, you know, doesn't have any evidence. It's just opinion. Well, a lot is, but not Christianity. We are defending a faith that is rooted in history. We are defending a faith that is rooted in reality, and it's unique from other religions. And God expects us to engage our minds and to consider the evidence. Now, I realize that everyone that comes to Christ does not do so, you know, through such maybe an intellectual vein, and you could maybe through a subjective experience. All those are valid, but I'm just saying that the complete picture includes using the mind. And I would say, I don't think it's primarily a feeling or an emotion or even just some religious ideal that we can validate the history and the accuracy of Scripture. And this bolsters our faith. You cannot just look at the evidence of the resurrection or the evidence for the veracity of Scripture and just make some sweeping claim and say, I just don't believe that. Now, you have the freedom to say that, but you've got to have evidence. You've got to have premises that counter the other points. I mean, can you imagine a defense attorney trying to defend a defendant, and you have all this evidence that shows that he's guilty, or they try to prove he's guilty, and the defense attorney just says, you know what, I don't believe any of that. I don't think our guy did it. Case closed. What? You have to answer the evidence. You have to say why you think your guy didn't do it, right? That's not case closed. That's mind closed. Deal with the evidence. And I'm here to tell you, Christianity can stand up to the scrutiny, all right? And because I know Christianity is objective and has great evidence, I can have confidence in my faith. So I can welcome God's work in my life knowing that he's already intervened in history. And I can read about that. I can see about that. I can have confidence in his power to intervene in my life as well because I know that God raised Jesus from the dead and that resurrection power is in me. And so Saul's heart was positioned for long-term faithfulness. Why? He was eager to serve. He was actively learning maturing, growing, and he was confident in a faith that was objective. Let's pray.